Chapter Twenty Nine of Babbitt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Mike Vendetti. MikeVendetti.com. Babbitt by Sinclair Lewis. Chapter Twenty Nine. One. The assurance of Tanis Judique's friendship fortified Babbitt's self-approval. At the athletic club, he became experimental. Though Virgil Gunch was silent, the others at the roughnecks' table came to accept Babbitt as having for no visible reason, turned crank. They argued windily with him, and he was cocky and enjoyed the spectacle of his interesting martyrdom. He even praised Seneca Doan, Professor of Humphrey, said that was carrying a joke too far, but Babbitt argued, No, fact. I tell you, he's got one of the keenest intellects in the country. Why, Lord Wycombe said that— Oh, who the hell is Lord Wycombe? What you always lugging him in for? You've been touting him for the last six weeks, protested Orville Jones. George ordered him from Sears Roebuck. You can get those English high muckamucks by mail for two bucks apiece, suggested Sidney Finkelstein. That's all right now. Lord Wycombe, he's one of the biggest intellects in English political life. As I was saying, of course, I'm conservative myself, but I appreciate a guy like Sonny Doan because— Virgil Gunch interrupted harshly. I wonder if you are so conservative. I find I can manage to run my own business without any skunks and reds like Don't in it. The grimness of Gunch's voice, the hardness of his jaw, disconcerted Babbitt, but he recovered and went on till they looked bored, then irritated, then as doubtful as Gunch. 2. He thought of Tanis always. With a stir he remembered her every aspect. His arms yearned for her. I've found her. I've dreamed of her all these years, and now I've found her. He exulted. He met her at the movies in the morning. He drove out to her flat in the late afternoon, or on evenings when he was believed to be at the Elks. He knew her financial affairs and advised her about them. When she lamented her feminine ignorance and praised his masterfulness, and proved to know much more about bonds than he did, they had remembrances and laughter over old times. Once they quarreled, and he raged that she was as bossy as his wife, and far more whining when he was inattentive, but that passed safely. Their high hour was a tramp on a ringing December afternoon, through snow-drifted meadows down to the icy Chalusas River. She was exotic in an astrogen cap and a short beaver coat. She slid on the ice and shouted, and he panted after her, rotund with laughter. Myra Babbitt never slid on the ice. He was afraid that they would be seen together. In Zenith it is impossible to lunch with a neighbor's wife without the fact being known before nightfall in every house in your circle. But Tanis was beautifully discreet. However appealingly she might turn to him when they were alone, she was gravely detached when they were abroad and he hoped that she would be taken for a client. Orville Jones once saw them emerging from a movie theater, and Babbitt bumbled, uh, Let me make you acquainted with Mrs. Judique. Now here's a lady who knows the right broker to come to, Orvy. Mr. Jones, though he was a man censorious of morals and of laundry machinery, seemed satisfied. His predominant fear, not from any especial fondness for her, but from a, the habit of propriety, was that his wife would learn of the affair. 
He was certain that she knew nothing specific about tennis, but he was also certain that she suspected something indefinite. For years she had been bored by anything more affectionate than a farewell kiss, yet she was hurt by any slacking in his irritable periodic interest, and now he had no interest, rather a revulsion. He was completely faithful to Tanis. He was distressed by the sight of his wife's slack plumpness, by her puffs and billows of flesh, by the tattered petticoat which she was always meaning and always forgetting to throw away. But he was aware that she, so long attuned to him, caught all his repulsions. He elaborately, heavily, jocularly tried to check them. He couldn't. They had a tolerable Christmas. Kenneth Escott was there, admittedly engaged to Verona. Mrs. Babbitt was cheerful and called Kenneth her new son. Babbitt was worried about Ted, because he had ceased complaining of the State University and become suspiciously acquiescent. He wondered what the boy was planning, and was too shy to ask. Himself, Babbitt slipped away on Christmas afternoon to take his present, a silver cigarette box, to Tanis. When he returned, Mrs. Babbitt asked much too innocently, "'Did you go out for a little fresh air?' "'Yes, just a little drive,' he mumbled. After New Year's, his wife proposed, "'I heard from my sister today, George. She isn't well. I think perhaps I ought to stay with her for a few weeks.' Now, Mrs. Babbitt was not accustomed to leave home during the winter except on violently demanding occasions, and only the summer before she had been gone for weeks, nor was Babbitt one of the detachable husbands who take separations casually. He liked to have her there. She looked after his clothes, she knew how his steak ought to be cooked, and her clucking made him feel secure. But he could not drum up even a dutiful, Oh, she doesn't really need you, does she? when he tried to look regretful. While he felt that his wife was watching him, he was filled with exultant visions of Tanis. "'Do you think I'd better go?' she said sharply. "'You got to decide, honey, I can't.' She turned away, sighing, and his forehead was damp. Till she went four days later, she was curiously still. He, cumbrously affectionate, her train left at noon. As he saw it grow small beyond the train-shed, he longed to hurry to Tanis. "'No, by God, I won't do that,' he vowed. "'I won't go near her for a week.' But he was at her flat at four. Three. He, who had once controlled or seemed to control his life in a progress unimpassioned but diligent and sane, was for that fortnight born on a current of desire and very bad whiskey and all the complications of new acquaintances, those furious new intimates who demanded so much more attention than old friends. Each morning he gloomily recognized his idiocies of the evening before. With his head throbbing, his tongue and lips stinging from cigarettes, he incredulously counted the number of drinks he had taken, and groaned, I gotta quit. He had ceased saying, I will quit for however resolute he might be at dawn, he could not, for a single evening, check his drift. He had met Tannis's friends he had with the ardent haste of the midnight people who drink and dance and rattle and are ever afraid to be silent, been adopted as a member of her group, which they called the Bunch. He first met them after a day when he had worked particularly hard and 
when he hoped to be quiet with Tanis and slowly sip her admiration. From down the hall he could hear shrieks and the grind of a phonograph. As Tanis opened the door he saw fantastic figures dancing in a haze of cigarette smoke. The tables and chairs were against the wall. "'Oh, isn't this dandy!' she grabbed at him. Harry Nork had the loveliest idea. She decided it was time for a party, and she's phoned the bunch and told them to gather round. George, this is Carrie. Carrie was, in the less desirable aspects of both, at once matronly and spinsterish. She was perhaps forty, or her hair was an unconvincing ash-blonde, and if her chest was flat, her hips were ponderous. She greeted Babbitt with a giggling, Welcome to our little midst. Tanis says you're a great sport. He was apparently expected to dance, to be boyish and gay with Carrie, and he did his unforgiving best. He towed her about the room, bumping into other couples, into the radiator, into chair legs, cunningly ambushed. As he danced, he surveyed the rest of the bunch, a thin young woman who looked capable, conceited, and sarcastic, another woman who he could never quite remember, three overdressed and slightly effeminate young men, soda fountain clerks, or at least born for that profession, a man of his own age, immovable, self-satisfied, resentful of Babbitt's presence. When he had finished his dutiful dance, Tanis took him aside and begged, "'Dear, wouldn't you like to do something for me? I'm all out of booze, and the bunch wants to celebrate. Couldn't you just skip down to Healy Hansen's and get some?' "'Sure,' he said, trying not to sound sullen. I'll tell you, I'll get Minnie Sontag to drive down with you. Tanis was pointing to the thin, sarcastic young woman. Miss Sontag greeted him with a astringent, How do you do, Mr. Babbitt? Tanis tells me you're a very prominent man. I'm honored to be allowed to drive with you. Of course, I'm not accustomed to associating with society people like you, so I don't know how to act in such exalted circles. Thus, Miss Sontag talked all the way down to Healy Hansen's. To her jibes, he wanted to reply, Oh, I'll go to the devil. But he never quite nerved himself to do that. Reasonable comment. He was resenting the existence of the whole bunch. He had heard Tanis speak of Darling Carrie and Min Sontang. She's so clever you'll adore her. But they had never been real to him. He had pictured Tanis as living in a rose-tinted vacuum, waiting for him free of all the complications of a floral heights. When they returned, he had to endure the patronage of the young soda clerks. They were as damply friendly as Miss Sontang was dryly hostile. They called him Old Georgie and shouted, Come on now, sport, shake a leg. Boys in belted coats, pimply boys as young as Ted and as flabby as chorus men, but powerful to dance and to mind the phonograph and smoke cigarettes and patronize Tanis. He tried to be one of them, he cried. Good work, Pete! But his voice creaked. Tanis apparently enjoyed the companionship of the dancing darlings. She bridled to their bland flirtation and casually kissed them at the end of each dance. Babbitt hated her for the moment. He saw her as middle-aged. He studied the wrinkles in the softness of her throat, the slack flesh beneath her chin, the taut muscles of her youth were loose and drooping. Between dances she sat in the largest chair, waving her cigarette, summoning her callow admirers to come and talk to her. "'She thinks she's a bloomin' queen,' growled Babbitt. She chanted to Miss Santine, 
isn't my little studio sweet studio rats it's a plain old maid and chow dog flat oh god i wish i was home i wonder if i can't make a getaway now his vision grew blurred however as he applied himself to healy hansen's raw but vigorous whiskey he blended with the bunch he began to rejoice that carrie nork and pete the most nearly intelligent of the nimble youth seemed to like him and it was enormously important to win over the surly older man who proved to be a railway clerk named fulton bemis the conversation of the bunch was exclamatory high-colored full of references to people whom babbitt did not know apparently they thought very comfortably of themselves they were the bunch wise and beautiful and amusing they were bohemians and urbanites accustomed to all the luxuries of zenith dance halls movie theaters and roadhouses and in a cynical superiority to people who were slow or tightwad they cackled oh pete did i tell you what that dub of a cashier said when i came in late yesterday oh it was perfectly priceless oh but wasn't t d stewed say he was simply ossified what did gladys say to him think of the nerve of bob bixford trying to get us to come to his house say the nerve of him can you beat it for nerve some nerve i call it did you notice how dotty was dancing gee wasn't she the limit babbitt was to be heard sonorously agreeing with the once hated miss mimi sontang that persons who let a night go by without dancing to jazzimic were crabs pikers and poor fish and he roared you bet when mrs carrie nort gurgled don't you love to sit on the floor it's so bohemian he began to think extremely well of the bunch when he mentioned his friends sir gerald dork lord whitcomb william washington Earthorn, and chum frank he was proud of their condescending interest he got so thoroughly in the jocund spirit that he didn't much mind seeing tanis drooping against the shoulder of the youngest and milkiest of the young men and he himself desired to hold carrie north's pulpy hand and dropped it only because tanis looked angry when he went home at two he was fully a member of the bunch and all the week thereafter he was bound by the exceedingly strained conventions the exceedingly wearing demands of their life of pleasure and freedom he had to go to their parties he was involved in the agitation when everybody telephoned to everybody else that she hadn't meant what she'd said when she'd said that and anyway why was pete going around saying she'd said it never was a family more insistent on learning one another's movements then were the bunch all of them volubly knew or indignantly desired to know where all the others had been every minute of the week babbitt found himself explaining to carrie or fulton bemis just what he had been doing that he should not have joined them till ten o'clock and apologizing for having gone to dinner with a business acquaintance every member of the bunch was expected to telephone to every other member at least once a week why haven't you called me up babbitt was asked accusingly not only by tanis and carrie but presently by new ancient friends jenny and captoni and toots if for a moment he had seen tanis as withering and sentimental he lost that impression at carrie nork's dance mrs nork had a huge house and a small husband to her party came all of the bunch perhaps thirty-five of them when they were completely mobilized babbitt under the name of old georgie 
was now a pioneer of the bunch, since each month it changed half its membership, and he who could recall the prehistoric days of a fortnight ago, before Mrs. Absalom, the food demonstrator, had gone to Indianapolis and Mac had got sore at many, was a venerable leader and able to condescend to new Pete's and Minnie's and Gladys's. At Carrie's, Tannis did not have to work at being hostess. She was dignified and sure, a clear, fine figure in the black chiffon frock he had always loved, and in the wider spaces of the ugly house Babbitt was able to sit quietly with her. He repented of his first revulsion, mooned at her feet, and happily drove her home. Next day he bought a violent yellow tie to make himself young for her. He knew a little sadly that he could not make himself beautiful. He beheld himself as heavy, hinting of fatness. But he danced, he dressed, he chatted, to be as young as she was, as young as she seemed to be. Four. As all converts, whether to a religion, love, or gardening, find as by magic that, though hitherto these hobbies have not seemed to exist, now the whole world is filled with their fury. So once he was converted to dissipation, Babbitt discovered agreeable opportunities for it everywhere. He had a new view of his sporting neighbor, Sam Doppelou. The Doppelous were respectable people, industrious people, prosperous people whose ideal of happiness was an eternal cabaret. Their life was dominated by suburban bacchanalia of alcohol, nicotine, gasoline, and kisses. They and their set worked capably all the week, and all week looked forward to Saturday night, when they would, as he expressed it, throw a party. And the thrown party grew noisier and noisier up to Sunday dawn, and usually included an extremely rapid motor expedition to nowhere in particular. One evening, when Tannis was at the theater, Babbitt found himself being lively with the Doppelbrows, pledging friendship with men whom he had for years privately denounced to Mrs. Babbitt as a rotten bunch of tin horns that I wouldn't go out with, rot if they were the last people on earth. That evening he had sulkily come home and poked about the front of the house, chipping off the walk the ice clots like fossil footprints made by the steps of passers-by during the recent snow. Howard Littlefield came up snuffling. So winter were, George. Yep. Cold again tonight. What do you hear from the wife? She's feeling fine, but her sister's still pretty sick. Hey, better come in and have dinner with us tonight, George. Oh, thanks. Have to go out. Suddenly he could not endure Littlefield's recitals of the more interesting statistics about totally uninteresting problems. He scraped at the walk and grunted. Sam Doppelview appeared. Evening, Babbitt. Working hard? Yep. Little exercise. Cold enough for you tonight? Well, just about. Still a widower? Uh-huh. Say, Babbitt, while she's away, I know you don't care much for booze fights, but the missus and I'd be awfully glad if you would come in some night. Think you could stand a good cocktail for once? Stand it, young fellow. I bet old Uncle George can mix the best cocktail in these United States. Hooray, that's the way to talk. Look here. There's some folks coming to the house tonight, Louetta Swanson and some other live ones, and I'm going to open up a bottle of pre-war gin, and maybe we'll dance a while. Why don't you drop in and jazz it up a little, just for a change? 
Well, what time they coming? He was at the Sam Dopperoos at nine. It was the third time he had entered the house. By ten he was calling Mr. Dopperoo, Sam, old hoss. At eleven they all drove out to the old farm inn. Babbitt sat in the back of Dopperoo's car with Louetta Swanson. Once he had timorously tried to make love to her. Now he did not try, he merely made love. And Louetta dropped her head on his shoulder, told him what a nagger Eddie was, and accepted Babbitt as a decent and well-trained libertine. With the assistance of Tannis's bunch, the Doppelroos and other companions in forgetfulness, there was not an evening for two weeks when he did not return home late and shaky. With his other faculties blurred, he yet had the motorist gift of being able to drive when he could scarce walk, of slowing down at corners and allowing for approaching cars. He came wambling into the house. If Verona and Kenneth Escott were about, he got past them with a hasty greeting, horribly aware of their level young glances, and hid himself upstairs. He found when he came into the warm house that he was hazier than he had believed. His head whirled. He dared not lie down. He tried to soak out the alcohol in the hot bath. For the moment his head was clear, but when he moved about the bathroom his calculations of distance were wrong, so that he dragged down the towels and knocked over the soap-dish with a clatter, which he feared would betray him to the children. Chilly in his dressing-gown, he tried to read the evening paper. He could follow every word. He seemed to take in the sense of things. But a minute afterward he could not have told what he had been reading. When he went to bed his brain flew in circles, and he hastily sat up, struggling for self-control. At last he was able to lie still, feeling only a little sick and dizzy, and enormously ashamed. To hide his condition from his own children, to have danced and shouted with people whom he despised, to have said foolish things, sung idiotic songs, tried to kiss silly girls, Incredulously, he remembered that he had, by his roaring familiarity with them, laid himself open to the patronizing of youth whom he would have kicked out of his office, that by dancing too ardently he had exposed himself to rebukes from the rattiest of withering women. As it came relentlessly back to him, he snarled, I hate myself. God, how I hate myself. But he raged, I'm through. No more. Had enough. Plenty. He was even sure about it the morning after, when he was trying to be grave and paternal with his daughters at breakfast. At noontime he was less sure. He did not deny that he had been a fool. He saw it almost as clearly as at midnight, but anything he struggled was better than going back to a life of barren heartiness. At four he wanted to drink. He kept a whiskey flask in his desk now, and after two minutes of battle he had his drink. Three drinks later he began to see the bunch as tender and amusing friends, and by six he was with them, and the tale was to be told all over. Each morning his head ached a little less, a bad head buffered drinks had been his safeguard, but the safeguard was crumbling. Presently he could be drunk at dawn, yet not feel particularly wretched in his conscience or in his stomach when he awoke at eight. No regret, no desire to escape the toil of keeping up with the idurous merriment of the bunch was so great as his feeling of social inferiority when he failed to keep up. To be the liveliest of them was as much his ambition now as it had been to excel at making money at playing golf, at 
motor-driving, at oratory, at climbing to the McKevley set. But occasionally he failed. He found that Pete and the other young men considered the bunch too austerely polite, and the Carrie, who merely kissed behind doors, too embarrassingly monogamic. As Babbitt sneaked from the Floral Heights down to the bunch, so the young gallants snaked from the properties of the bunch off to times with bouncing young women whom they picked up in department stores and at hotel coat rooms. Once Babbitt tried to accompany them. There was a motor-car, a bottle of whiskey, and for him a grubby, shrieking cash girl from Parcher and Stein's. He sat beside her and worried. He was apparently expected to jolly her along, but when she sang out, "'Hey, Lingo, quit crushing me, cootie garage!' He did not quite know how to go on. They sat in the back room of a saloon, and Babbitt had a headache. He was confused by their new slang, looked at them benevolently, wanted to go home, and had a drink. A good many drinks. Two evenings after, Fulton Bemis, the surly older man of the bunch, took Babbitt aside and grunted, "'Look here, it's none of my business, and God knows I always lap up my share of the hooch. But don't you think you'd better watch yourself? You're one of the enthusiastic chumps that always overdo things. Do you realize you're throwing in the booze as fast as you can, and you eat one cigarette right after the other? Better cut it out for a while.' Babbitt tearfully said that good old Fult was a prince, and yes, he certainly would cut it out, and thereafter— he lighted a cigarette and took a drink and had a horrific quarrel with Tanis when she caught him being affectionate with Carrie Nork. Next morning he hated himself that he should have sunk into a position where a fifteenth raider like Fulton Bemis could rebuke him. He perceived that, since he was making love to every woman possible, Tanis was no longer his one pure star, and he wondered whether she had ever been anything more to him than a woman. And if Bemis had spoken to him, were other people talking about him? He suspiciously watched the men at the athletic club at noon. It seemed to him they were uneasy. They had been talking about him then? He was angry. He became belligerent. He not only defended Seneca Doan, but even made fun of the Y.M.C.A. Virgil Gunch was rather brief in his answers. Afterward, Babbitt was not angry. He was afraid. He did not go to the next lunch of the Boosters Club, but hid in a cheap restaurant, and while he munched a ham-and-egg sandwich and sipped coffee from a cup on the arm of his chair, he worried. Four days later, when the bunch were having one of their best parties, Babbitt drove them to the skating rink which had been laid out on the Chalusa River. After a thaw, the streets had frozen in smooth ice. Down those wide, endless streets the wind rattled between the rows of wooden houses, and the whole Bellevue district seemed a frontier town. Even with skid chains on all four wheels, Babbitt was afraid of sliding, and when he came to the long slide of a hill, he crawled down, both brakes on. Slewing around a corner came a less cautious car. It skidded. It almost raked them with its rear fenders. In relief at their escape, the bunch, Tannis, Minnie, Sontag, Pete, Fulton, Bemis, shouted, Oh, baby! and waved their hands to the agitated other driver. Then Babbitt saw Professor Pumphrey, laboriously crawling uphill, afoot, staring owlishly at the revelers. He was sure that Pumphrey recognized him and saw Tannis kiss him as she crowed, 
You're such a good driver. At lunch the next day, he probed Pumphrey with, Out last night with my brother and some friends of his. Gosh, what driving slippery glass. Thought I saw you hiking up the Bellevue Avenue hill. No, I wasn't. I didn't see you, said Pumphrey hastily, rather guiltily. Perhaps two days afterward, Babbitt took Tannis to lunch at the Hotel Thornley. She, who had seemed well content to wait for him at her flat, had begun to hint with melancholy smiles that he must think but little of her if he never introduced her to his friends, if he was unwilling to be seen with her except at the movies. He thought of taking her to the ladies' annex of the athletic club, but that was too dangerous. He would have to introduce her, and, oh, people might misunderstand, and he compromised on the thornlay. She was unusually smart, all in black, small black tricone hat, short black caracal coat, loose and swinging an austere high-necked black velvet frock, at a time when most street costumes were like evening gowns. Perhaps she was too smart. Everyone in the Gold and Oak restaurant of the Thurnal was staring at her as Babbitt followed her to a table. He uneasily hoped that the head-waiter would give them a discreet place behind a pillar, but they were stationed on the center aisle. Tennis seemed not to notice her admirers. She smiled at Babbitt with a lavish, Oh, isn't this nice? What a peppy-looking orchestra. Babbitt had difficulty in being lavish in return. For two tables away he saw Virgil Gunch. All through the meal Gunch watched them, while Babbitt watched himself being watched and lugubriously tried to keep from spoiling Tennis's gaiety. I feel like a spree today, she rippled. I love the Thornley, don't you? It's so live and yet so, so refined. He made talk about the Thornley, the service, the food, the people he recognized in the restaurant, all but Virgil Gunch. There did not seem to be anything else to talk of. He smiled conscientiously at her fluttering jest. He agreed with her that Minnie Sontang was so hard to get along with, and young Pete, such a silly, lazy kid, really just no good at all. But he himself had nothing to say. He considered telling her his worries about Gunch, but, oh, gosh, it was too much work to go into the whole thing and explain about Virgin everything. He was relieved when he put Tannis on a trolley. He was cheerful in the familiar simplicities of his office. At four o'clock, Virgil Gunch called on him. Babbitt was agitated, but Gunch began in a friendly way. How's the boy? Say, some of us are getting up a scheme. We'd kind of like to have you come in on. Fine, Virg, shoot. You know, during the war, we had the undesirable element, the Reds, and walking delegates, and just the plain common grouches, dead to rights. And so did we for quite a while after the war. But folks forgot about the danger, and that gives these cranks a chance to begin working underground again, especially a lot of these parlor socialists. Well, it's up to the folks that do a little sound thinking to make a conscious effort to keep bucking these fellows. Some guy back east has organized a society called the Good Citizens League for just that purpose. Of course, the Chamber of Commerce and the American Legion, and so do a fine work in keeping the decent people in the saddle. But they're devoted to so many other causes that they can't attend to this one problem properly. But the Good Citizens League the G.C.L. 
they stick right to it oh the gcl has to have some other ostensible purposes for instance here in zenith i think it ought to support the park extension project and the city planning committee and then too it should have a social aspect being made up of the best people have dances and so on especially as one of the best ways it can put the kibosh on cranks is to apply this social boycott business to folks big enough so you can't reach em otherwise then if that don't work the gcl can finally send a little delegation around to inform folks that get too flip that they got to conform to decent standards and quit shooting off their mouths so free don't it sound like the organization could do great work we've already got some of the strongest men in town and of course we want you in how about it babbitt was uncomfortable he felt a compulsion back to all the standards he had so vaguely yet so desperately been fleeing he fumbled i suppose you'd specially light on fellows like seneca doan and try to make em you bet your sweet life we would look here old georgie i've never for one moment believed you meant it when you've defended doan and the strikers and so on at the club i knew you were simply kidding those poor galoots like sid finkelstein at least i certainly hope you were kidding oh well sure of course you might say babbitt was conscious of how feeble he sounded conscious of gunch's mature and relentless eye gosh you know where i stand i'm no labor agitator i'm a businessman first last and all the time but but honest i don't think doan means so badly and you got to remember he's an old friend of mine george when it comes right down to a struggle between decency and the security of our homes on the one hand and red ruin and those lazy dogs plotting for free beer on the other you got to give up even old friendships he that is not with me is against me uh, i suppose how about it going to join us in the good citizens league i'll have to think it over verge all right just as you say babbitt was relieved to be let off so easy but grunch went on george i don't know what's come over you none of us do and we've talked a lot about you for a while we figured out you'd been upset by what happened to poor risling and we forgive you for any fool thing you said but it's old stuff now george we can't make out what's got into you personally i've always defended you but i must say it's getting too much for me all the boys at the athletic club and the boosters are sore the way you go on deliberately touting doan and his bunch hellhounds and talking about being liberal which means being wishy-washy and even saying this preacher guy ingram isn't a professional free love artist and then the way you've been carrying on personally joe pumphrey says he saw you out the other night with a gang of toddies all stewed to the gills and here today coming right into thornlow with a well she may be all right and a perfect lady but she certainly did look like a pretty gay skirt for a fellow with his wife out of town to be taken to lunch didn't look well the devil's come over you george strikes me that there's a lot of fellows that know more about my personal business than i do myself now don't go getting sore at me because i came out flat-footed like a friend 
and say what I think instead of tattling behind your back, the way a whole lot of them do. I tell you, George, you got a position in the community, and a community expects you to live up to it, and better think over joining the Good Citizens League. See about it later. He was gone. That evening Babbitt dined alone. He saw all the clan of good fellows peering through the restaurant window, spying on him. Fear sat beside him, and he told himself that tonight he would not go to Tennis's flat. And he did not go. Till late. End of chapter 29